Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. First on CNN, we now know the name of a new January 6th witness, what could be the final January 6th committee public hearing that's set for primetime Thursday night. We're learning tonight that that person is Matthew Pottinger, and he is set to testify, apparently, this coming Thursday. He served on then-President Trump's National Security Council, but his service came to an abrupt end when he decided to resign in the middle of the riot. One of my staff brought me a printout uh, of a uh, tweet uh, by the president, and the tweet uh, said something to the effect that uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, didn't have the courage um, to, uh, to, to do what he what should have been done. Um, I uh, I read that tweet uh, and uh, made a decision at that moment to resign. Uh, that's where I knew that I was leaving that day uh, once I read that tweet. Now, a reminder of what that tweet said. He wrote in part, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, unquote. When Trump was out of sight from the public during the riot, of course, he had time to slam his own VP on Twitter and waited did nothing to lower the temperature anywhere across this country, let alone at the Capitol. And for all the hours and hours and hours of video that we have seen from January 6th, from the rioters storming up the steps to the evacuation of the vice president, we still didn't actually have any visual evidence of what the commander-in-chief was doing that day. And mind you, it's over three hours, 187 minutes worth of time. So we're going to... We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. Well, what happened in those special moments in between? Well, that's the main focus Thursday night. We have filled in the blanks. Uh, I can't necessarily say that the motives behind every piece of information we know will be able to explain, but this is going to open people's eyes in a big way. Uh, The reality is, I'll give you this preview, the president didn't do very much, but gleefully watch television during this time frame. Uh, We're going to present a lot more than that. Well, along with Pottinger, former Deputy White House Press Secretary Sarah Matthews, seen right there, is also expected to testify. Now, she also resigned the night of January 6th after saying that she was, quote, deeply disturbed by what she saw. So the question, of course, is just what exactly did you see that we did not see on our television screens that same day? So what will we learn from Matthews? And will it be additive or corroborative in some way? Both? Neither? As a committee chair, Benny Thompson might say, stay tuned. Meanwhile... Why is Steve Bannon smiling? 
That's him going into federal court today. And I repeat, federal court today, not as a spectator, as a defendant. With jury selection now underway in his contempt trial on charges of failing to comply with the January 6th Select Committee. Recall that he just blew off their subpoena for testimony, never provided documents related to January 6th. And tonight, Bannon is still angling, it seems, for an open mic, as long as in front of the January 6th committee, that is. I really want to thank all the jurors for being, uh, being truthful and blunt. I thought that was great. I think we'd have had been more productive if we'd been on Capitol Hill in front of open mics addressing the nation with exactly all this nonsense, this show trial they've been putting up on, uh, on Capitol Hill. It's time they start having other witnesses that can give other, si- other testimony other than what they've been putting up. Don't worry. That happening on the Hill is a legislative hearing. They won't have the same thing as your criminal trial. There'll be an opportunity for you to, of course, should you choose to, testify or anything else. But keep in mind that Steve Bannon, who could spend at least 30 days and even up to a year in jail if convicted, he's on trial because he refused to talk to that committee. The same one he's now wanting to listen to him. Only this month did Bannon actually tell the committee he was willing to testify and ideally in public. Now that came after Bannon said that he got a letter from Donald Trump waiving executive privilege, though federal prosecutors say that even even if that privilege applied here, it never gave him like a carte blanche to ignore the subpoena and not answer a single question or hand over documents. But we are in the United States of America. There is a presumption of innocence and prosecutors must carry and meet their burden. So what if Bannon is acquitted in this trial? What if they don't, for the jury's sake, actually convict? This might be only a couple days' worth of a trial. It's supposed to wrap up pretty quickly. It's not that complicated a case in terms of whether he appeared or provided documents. But what might complicate it is if Bannon does walk. Does that mean that others can then walk all over Congress? I mean, could, say, a former president laugh off the idea, the very notion of testifying under oath to this panel or anyone else? How about a Trump loyalist like Peter Navarro, who has, of course, had his own indictment to deal with? who just turned down a plea deal from the DOJ, if Bannon were to walk, would he then feel emboldened to keep quiet? I'm joined now by Elliot Williams, Ramesh Panuru and Panuru, excuse me, I know his name, Ramesh Panuru and Miles Taylor, the former chief of the staff for the Homeland Security Secretary under Trump. He knows that former NSC official Matthew Pottinger, who will testify this Thursday. I'm going to talk to you first, but I will not ignore anyone else in the panel. And I'm going to get your name right again, because I know your name, Ramesh. We both went to Princeton, for God's sake. I know your name. Anyway, listen, Miles, you know this person. I have to ask you, what do you expect the person to actually say? And what is your take on how he will be received? Look, I think the ex-president is really sweating this, because unlike other people that have testified, where ex-President Trump has said, this was a low-level aide, I've never seen this person. Let's be clear, Matt Pottinger was the deputy national security advisor to the president of the United States. He went on trips with him. He sat with him in the White House Situation Room. He was often where the president was when the national security advisor wasn't. He was in the Oval Office on calls with foreign leader. This is a very close insider. Uh, Trump cannot say he did not know Matt Pottinger. Now, look, He's also worried because Matt Pottinger, the one I knew, the one I served with, 
is a very honest man, is respected for being very straightforward and being very apolitical. Matt's a former Marine. He's someone who tells it like it is, and he's very understated. He's not a showboat. He didn't try to go get attention for his time before or after you know, the administration. He's someone who's going to want to tell the truth. And to your question about what he might have seen, I think we're going to find out that Matt was likely in the West Wing of the White House the day this happened on January 6th, and is the person that you would expect to be the one to want to pick up the phone for Donald Trump and call someone like the Secretary of Defense, like other people in law enforcement, to try to get the attack to stop. In fact, I can think of few people better positioned to talk about being worried about the lapse of those 187 minutes. That would be Matt's job to try to work on behalf of the president to stop that attack. And I think all of this time, we've looked for a smoking gun in this case. And the closest thing to a smoking gun was already out there. It's the fact that the ex-president waited three hours to do something. And the question that I'm sure Matt Pottinger is going to get asked is, why did Trump not stop this? And I think we probably know the answers, that he didn't want it to be stopped. But those questions are going to be very interesting to hear from someone who should have been the person to place that phone call for Trump if he had decided to make it stop. You know, when I hear this, I think to myself, again, who's in the room where it happens? Who are the people that would have known what President Trump was doing at the time or not doing at the time? But I think a lot of people wonder this point in terms of sort of the last straws that break a camel's back. You know, a lot of people resigned on January 6th. Um, Obviously, it stands in stark contrast to many of the other scandals that happened during the Trump presidency. But will that undermine the notion that only now are we hearing from him? Only now did he decide to resign? A lot of people have sort of criticized those who are, I don't want to call them the Johnny-come-latelys, but the idea of um, the epiphanies are much more delayed for some than others. Yeah. So... I think that Pottinger's an interesting case because he survived a lot of tumult at the National Security Council. There were three national security advisors under Trump, and, and Pottinger just managed to ride through the whole thing. I think a lot of people who work for an administration, uh, for, particularly for the Trump administration, who had serious misgivings about President Trump told themselves they were doing some good and avoiding some harm. And I think that is a, an easier justification to make if you're the deputy national security advisor mm. than you are if you're in any number of other positions. The adult in the room, so it's like everyone talks about, the last line of defense, so to speak. You don't, do you buy it? No, I, see, I do. You're kind of smirking. I, I can't mean, tell. I mean, yes and no, right? It's, uh, look, everybody knew who Donald Trump was back in 2015. And so uh, when, he, uh, when he announced for the presidency, and so it should have been a surprise to nobody what you got uh, in 2020. Now, Yet at the, the same time. Insurrection so, is a shock. I mean, right? The sorry. insurrection Insur- is a shock. In general, you don't inspect, expect insurrections to happen. Right. I, will, I will stipulate to that council. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, look, I was a political appointee for eight years. Uh, I was in government for 15 years, and people serve for a lot of different reasons. And to some extent, you got to give people credit for trying to be the adult in the room. That said, you knew what you were getting, and you shouldn't have been that surprised uh, with, with what you got. I, I, want, I want to add, I, I love my friend Elliot, but... <laughs> Here comes a violence. Uh, yeah. Wait, whoa, that's like, it's almost like, with all due but, respect. Uh, <laughs> I have more angst than anyone about the fact that people didn't leave with me and others and join the campaign against Donald Trump. I really did. When did you leave? I I left uh, year two of the administration. Okay. Very, very frustrated that more people didn't do it at the same time. Matt Pottinger, though, is one of the people I would give a pass to. I cannot tell you how many days after I left, I would actually say to people, 
I'm glad folks like Matt are still in because we knew how volatile Trump was, especially on foreign and defense policy issues. And Matt was indeed one of the very last adults in the room in that White House and in a national security role. He needed to be one of those last adults. But there is a separate question. So January 6th may have been the straw that led him to resign. But as is true of a number of other figures in the administration, it wasn't enough for him to say publicly a lot of the things that we are going to be hearing now. So he needed to reach another threshold in order to be willing to talk. And I think that that is something that's been replicated by other members of this of that administration. What's that threshold for you? Subpoena, you're saying? Well, I think that that's a a legitimate question. If some of these things are of public import, that they're things that the public needed to know, I think that after you're out of government, you've got a responsibility to talk about some of those things. And moreover, look, this is testimony under oath. Like, you know, folks folks have their come-to-Jesus moment, and, you know, whether it's write a book, give a press conference or whatever it is, there's something to be said for testifying under oath and putting their words on the record. You know, now, look, you know, Ramesh, I share this, some skepticism of... Uh, you know, folks who sort of knew what they were getting. But again, uh, it's complicated. And it's just far more complicated. Well, these and, questions and I think of a lot of people thought service, yeah. right after January 6th, this is so discrediting for Trump. Yeah. We don't have to say anything. He's going to be off the national stage. He's going to be politically marginalized. And then that turned out not to be true. Right. Well, last I checked, there are, what, 435 members of Congress who have the floor at any time to talk about whatever they'd like to, including Republicans and Democrats and even more who could come forward without a subpoena. We'll talk more about that. Stick around. We're going to focus in on the Steve Bannon trial as well. If he's so ready to tell his story publicly, to the point we're talking about here, ready to talk on Capitol Hill, should he testify in his own defense inside the courtroom? And how much is he willing to risk to remain loyal to Donald Trump? As if there was a ceiling. That's next. I really want to thank all the jurors for being A very good first day. That's how Steve Bannon described the first day of his federal trial for criminal contempt for refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. 22 potential jurors were picked today. The jury is going to whittle down a little bit more and might be finalized as early as tomorrow. And then you've got opening arguments starting underway. So what can we expect from this trial? And does Bannon have any reason to think it was a really good day? Back with me, Elliot Williams, Miles Taylor, and Ramesh Panuru. I'm so glad you're all here. I want to ask about this idea of Steve Bannon because there's an element of bravado, right? The idea of, hey, the person who said, you know, the misdemeanor from hell sort of challenged everyone for doing this. At one point tried to have Pelosi subpoenaed members of the committee. The judge, a Trump appointee, shot that down. Is this bravado where he's trying to say, hey, I'm sort of a, a, a MAGA martyr here and look at me? Or is there cause for him to think, hey, I might get off? Elliot? He he very well might. But look, Laura, this is really straightforward as far Mm -hmm. as crimes go. This isn't, you know, RICO or racketeering or some sort of big, complicated statute. You got to prove three things. Was there a subpoena? Did the guy know it was a subpoena? And did he intend to violate it? It's, you know, and you can do that in a day. It's really straightforward. It's why it's a misdemeanor. Now, the question is, uh, is the jury fooled into thinking somehow uh, that there's something more complicated than this? But this is really, really straightforward. And it's rare to say that about, look, you've been a prosecutor before too. And most of the times it's much tougher than this. This is really straightforward. He did it in front of all of us. He talked about it on his podcast. 
he ought to be convicted. I mean, the star witness is the calendar then. Like, it's like, here's a star. It's a calendar. It's the month of whatever I asked you to come in. But there's still that touchy area of, did I think I had some reason not to? You don't think so. Well, I mean, the judge has also disallowed a lot of the potential defenses, which also means that uh, we could end up having a trial that is shorter than the jury selection process was. Um, What I think he is happy to do, what I think that that smile suggests is that he wants to use this trial or a show trial, as he calls it, to burnish his martyrdom in the eyes of the people that he wants to continue to grift from. That's what he has been doing quite for, for handsome remuneration for several years now. But he is a testimony that could be very interesting also in a very different way than Pottinger because we do know that before the election, he was saying if Trump loses, he's just going to go out there and say that he won. So that actually goes to the state of mind question, which has been a kind of an open question in this investigation. How much did Trump, was Trump deluded and how much was he knowingly lying about the election? I mean, I wonder how much they'll open the door. If Steve Bannon goes on the stand, I can't imagine a prosecutor's going to go, let's just talk about the contempt. Let's just, let's just focus on the contempt. Nothing else matters. I have no other questions for you. You're going in on everything that he might say. And one thing I actually want to hear more about, uh, Miles, is there are some deleted text messages from the Secret Service. As much as I want to hear what Steve Bannon has to say at this trial because I want to know the greater context of things, I really want to know how it can be that you've got Secret Service text messages after I ask you to keep them. Poof, go away. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's, it's a little bit confounding, a little bit nerve-wracking to think that this is happening if it's anything nefarious. Yeah, look, the, the Secret Service agents themselves are well-meaning patriots, but this is a, an agency whose culture is absolutely, completely broken. I've seen that for 10 years from Capitol Hill all the way to the Department of Homeland Security. It's an agency that's broken. But broken how? Well, it's become a magnet for misconduct. Why? Because the agency has always prided itself in total independence. They protect the president of the United States. Trust us. Let us do our thing. But the result of that is without the appropriate oversight, there's a lot of mismanagement that happens in that agency. I dealt with this on a regular basis. Agents that were being uh, trading positions to the vice president's detail or the president's detail based on favoritism, not necessarily based on their performance. We saw a lot of things like that happen there in the Secret Service, and it was worrying. But worse still, Donald Trump exploited that by taking senior Secret Service employees and bringing them into positions that should be political. So he takes this guy, Tony Ornato, who was a Secret Service executive, and makes him the White House deputy chief of staff. The one who Cassie Hutchison says was in the room talking about this display of grabbing the steering wheel on his way to the, um, the, uh, the Capitol. But, you know, th- given what you just said, I mean, what's in those messages, do you think? I mean, you're shaking your head like you don't want to know, but I want to know. I'm shaking my head. I, I, think, I think the explanation is incredibly fishy. Yes. And when I see spokespeople for these agencies come out and give excuses, I actually feel yeah. bad for them because my response is, I worry that you don't have all the details. I've dealt with agencies that don't provide you all the details when you're in the middle of a crisis. And right now, I do not think we're to the bottom if, of it, and yeah. Congress needs to. If your phone records or my phone records were subpoenaed, we could not say, oh, sorry, we had a device migration. Well, God help Elliot if that happened. <laughs> But, yeah, just, yeah. But, but beyond that, the whole idea, let's step back. 
they had a device migration, quote unquote, which meant they were switching their telephones and erasing data. Why is a government agency erasing any data? There's all sorts of government retention rules across the government. So number one, that's that's odd enough as it is. Number two, the timing of it uh, seems just kind of odd. And at a minimum, both Congress and the independent inspector general need to, need to well, get to the bottom especially, of Especially, we're talking about like, not like, this didn't happen on, say, right. September 24th. Right. This happened. Which I, don't, I hope it's not a date in history that we want to pay attention to. It was January 5th and January 6th. These are consequential days that have happened. But I'm wondering when you hear from, say, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who seems to think these are going to be available tomorrow, we're going to have things tomorrow. I, I wonder whose timeline she's on. And do we know there are things that are actually happening? Do they think they're actually going to have them from someplace else? Well, well, this wouldn't be the first time in the investigation that the committee has had a witness that was not willing to provide all the text messages. I don't want to go into too much detail, but the staff have done uh, digital forensics in some cases to get information that witnesses were not providing. I suspect in this case, they'll rely on similar techniques and others to make sure that they get to the bottom of this. But, you know, there's, there's a political importance here as well, because the most gripping testimony we've had out of this committee so far was probably the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony. And then it was sort of left out there hanging because we didn't have corroboration, but we didn't, we just had people raising questions in the press about it, but nobody's actually stepped forward and directly contradicted it. I think we do need to get to the bottom of this because you could argue the committee shouldn't have actually gone to secondhand information that she was providing, but it has taken on a life of its own, and, and they, and they well, need well, to really, pin it down. It's, again, it's under oath, and people can say what they want to reporters. People can say what they want to their friends. They have not come in and testified, and they ought to. And there's a big difference between a sworn witness, regardless of whether you believe her story or not, but she's sworn and giving testimony that she's swearing is honest, uh, and, and and others who have not. You described sort of the legal term for that is cojones, I believe, <laughs> about that very notion. I have to also say, though, remember, we're talking about that idea of whether the story about Secret Service or someone trying to take him to the Capitol. The part that no one contested was that the President of the United States knew that there were armed members of the crowd and said, let them in, they're going to the Capitol next. To me, that was the story of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Elliot Williams, Miles Taylor, Ramesh Panuru, thank you so much. We'll turn to Uvalde next. We took you through all 77 minutes of that leaked surveillance video as it happened in real time right here on Friday night. But now there's even more video out from police body cameras, along with an extensive State House report. There's new anger from the victims' families, and we all understand why. But do the findings get us closer to making sure this kind of response never happens again? That's coming up. Nearly 400 officers. 400 officers responded to the massacre in Uvalde. And yet, none of them, not one sought to take charge of the crisis at hand. It was a leaderless response, according to a preliminary report by a Texas House investigative committee. Just one of numerous consequential failures that very tragic day. We're learning this as new police body cam videos offer an even closer look at those horrible 77 long minutes of inaction. A warning, these scenes are very hard to watch. Shots fired! Get inside! Go, go, go! Shot in the head, laying on Diaz Street. Diaz Street, the one female shot in the head. Shots fired inside the building, you buddy! 
Careful, guys, shot fire. That was just two minutes after the gunman had entered the school. The hallway, full of the smoke from gunfire. We know that more shots would ring out, leading to the officer's retreat. The officer whose body cam you just watched then ran outside to issue a radio call. At one point telling dispatch that he believed the gunman was contained in an office, not inside of a classroom. Male subjects in the school on the west side of the building. Uh, he's contained. We got multiple officers inside the building at this time. He believe he's uh, barricaded in one of the one of the offices. Male subjects still shooting. It wasn't an office. It was a classroom, and more than one, with children and teachers inside. And that was just one of the crucial pieces of misinformation that very day. It's part of what further moved what was such an urgent situation at first into this. Officers standing around and waiting for more resources and backup. When roughly 20 minutes passed, just think about how long that is for a child, for a person, for anyone. When roughly 20 minutes passed, one officer said this. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? It's painful to hear, knowing that the man who should have been incident commander at the scene, under school policy, mind you, was addressing this entire situation like it was a barricade situation, even looking for a key to a door that was likely unlocked even as some officers at the scene were learning this. Hey, what was that? Child called 911. The room is full of victims. Child victims. Victims in the room with him? Child on the phone, multiple victims. A child just called if they have victims in there. So they knew a child had called 911. And they were outside. The chief, for his part, kept his focus on negotiating with the shooter, even after a burst of more gunshots were heard. Sir, if you can hear me, please put your firearm down, sir. We don't want anybody else hurt. I know, I know. That's what we're doing. We're trying to get them out. They're going to break the window. Sir, if you can hear me, please put your gun down. We don't want anybody else hurt. The use of the word, sir, knowing what we know now, it's painful to hear. Nearly a half hour would pass before officers would breach that door. And the why, the why is still unfathomable. They could have rushed in. Maybe, maybe not all of them were going to make it, but at least in their final moments to hold their hand to comfort them, to let them know that, that, they're, that they're there with them. But... They did the total opposite of that. They stood there as people bled out. They stood there as, as they took their final breath. We'll take all this new video and the findings to a former police commissioner and the CNN reporter who's been on this story from the very beginning. That's next.
Tonight, Uvalde shooting survivors and their families are demanding school district officials pay attention to their fears of, of trying to return to school. Watch. I'm going to be a senior. How am I supposed to come back to this school? What are you guys going to do to make sure I don't have to watch my friends die? What are you going to do to make sure I don't have to wait 77 minutes bleeding out on my classroom floor just like my little sister did? My daughter has something to say. This was the last dress that my, all my friends saw me on. Most of those kids were my friends. And that's not good. And I don't want to go to your guys' school if they don't have protection. And she's encouraging for her friends not to go to school, too. I feel like that's something my own daughter would say and hold up the dress. It's just, what answers can they give? I mean, the school board meeting comes just a day after Texas lawmakers released a report outlining the multiple systemic failures and the, quote, egregious, unquote, poor decision-making that day. That's the understatement of the century. I want to bring in CNN's Shimon Prokipes, who is leading our fight for truth on the ground in Uvalde, and veteran police commissioner Charles Ramsey. Gentlemen, I'm so eager to speak with you both tonight because we're seeing just so much that's happening. I want to know, Shimon, from where you are, you're on the ground in Uvalde. You've been there since the beginning, really in in pursuing the truth that the families deserve. Um, You've heard from the family members. You've heard a little girl. You've heard an older sister of somebody who passed away in that classroom. What has been the fallout from this report that has just been issued and the new body camera video? What are the families, what's the community saying? Well, I will tell you one thing, Laura. I'm certainly noticing a difference uh, with with the families is that they're becoming, they're kind of finding their voice. They're starting to really speak out. They're starting to organize. They're starting to voice their opinions, their unhappiness. They want accountability. They want Chief Peter Arredondo fired. He's the school police chief. He's been on administrative leave. But the central theme here tonight was we want him fired. I've been to other meetings here uh, with the parents. This is a school board meeting. They usually don't speak out as much, but I, you know, the difference is noticeable. And I think it's this report that came out listing all of the problems, some of the deficiencies in the school security and some of the failures on the part of the school. And I really do think seeing images now from inside the school, the body camera footage uh, that we obtained and that the mayor ultimately released, as well as the other images from inside the school, they're starting to get information. They're starting to see things and they're starting to become angrier and angrier because they've been keeping all this information from them. And it's obvious why, you know, they were not being told the truth. And so they're starting to voice their opinions. They're scared, they're scared to send their children to school. So the school has to come up with some solutions. But the one thing I think people should know is that this community is starting to stand up for itself. This community is starting to have a voice. And that is a good thing because, you know, there was a time when they didn't want to say anything. But now they're starting to speak, and it's impactful, and I do believe it's going to make a difference. Commissioner Ramsey, I, may, I see you nodding, and one of the sad realities here is sometimes you learn to stand up for yourself when you know no one is coming. And one of the sad lessons that we have seen from Uvalde and what we're knowing in the information is nobody came. Nobody helped. Nobody saved. Nobody came as the hero and the savior. And that's one of the biggest tragedies we're seeing here. When you look at this, Commissioner Ramsey, you know, based on your assessment, I mean, in the report we're seeing, 
um, the law enforcement response or lack thereof. Now that you have more of a, a bird's eye view into what happened through body cam footage, what is your take now? Well, I mean, it was just a chaotic scene. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, a certain level of chaos uh, you're going to find in any active scene like that. But there was absolutely no leadership, no direction. I mean, there was nothing that was taking place that should have been taking place during that period of time uh, in order to stop the carnage taking place in those two classrooms. And there's just no excuse for it. None at all. Uh, I mean, you, you look at the uh, chief. He's there. He's fumbling with keys as opposed to trying to organize uh, some kind of tactical response to get to that shooter. Uh, you got 400 police officers responding. That's far too many. That's too many people on a scene. It just creates more confusion. If you don't have a specific role, you don't need to be there. Somebody's got to coordinate what's happening inside the building as well as outside. That's why you have incident command. That's why you have a command post established. None of that took place. So you know, the residents of Uvalde, I'm glad to hear that they are speaking up. They they deserve answers and they deserve action. Um, hell, I would have fired uh, Arredondo a long time ago. I don't know what's taking so long because clearly he's not a person that ought to lead anything, let alone a police. Well, department. I mean, one of the questions you'd have thinking about if there's 400 officers on that scene is Arredondo is the only name that comes up in that conversation. I want to put on the screen for everyone to see. There are, these are the planned safety and security enhancements that are coming for the upcoming school year 2022-2023. It includes um, a new perimeter fencing, installation of additional security cameras, upgrading doors and locks, hiring additional police officers and campus personnel, and also training. Um, Shimon, when you see what their plan is in connection with what is being demanded tonight at the school board meeting, is this in, even close to sufficient for the families and communities in Uvalde? Do they believe no. so? No, absolutely. No, they don't. I mean, they're even talking about going back to virtual uh, classrooms, classes, right? And they're asking if they could just keep their kids at home. Um, they don't trust the folks here, and it's understandable. Um, they shouldn't trust them. They, they were not told the truth. Uh, there have been a lot of meetings behind closed doors. A lot of the parents raising that issue here tonight that, you know, you guys, the school board, you have these meetings. You're sitting behind closed doors. We don't know what you're talking about. And also, interestingly enough, last time they did this meeting, they gave parents three minutes to talk. Well, smartly, finally, the school board decided we're not going to put a time limit. The parents will be able to come in and they will talk for as long as they need it. Imagine that. At one point, they were putting time limits on how much, and, and how many people could speak. They've changed that. So the parents so how, about, anger, how about this, Siobhan? How about you give, how about you give 400 parents 77 yep. minutes to talk? Those numbers sound right, right to me. Right. It's unbelievable. It's really, you know, having been here. Uh, real quick, Chief Ramsey, sorry. I think Chief Ramsey wanted yeah, to say something. Uh, just very quickly, I mentioned Arredondo needs to be, he's not the only one that ought to be held accountable. There are a lot of people that failed in this response, and there needs to be a thorough investigation. I personally don't think the Department of Public Safety ought to do it. Much of the, Most of the misinformation came from that agency. It needs to be an independent investigation. And that's happening now, Shimon, I think at some point. We'll follow along. You're on the ground giving us all the information. Thank you for being here and there. Thank you to both. Now, I want you to try to imagine this. Imagine trying to fill one of your prescriptions and getting denied. Because the medicine that you rely on just so happens to also be able to be used to end a pregnancy. 
That's what some patients across this country are now dealing with. And I mean right now in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade. One of the patients at risk joins me next. The impact of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe is growing, now affecting people who aren't seeking an abortion or even trying to get pregnant. My next guest has Crohn's disease, and to treat it, she relies on a medication called methotrexate. It's used to treat everything from Crohn's disease to arthritis to certain cancers, but it also can end pregnancy. And some doctors have stopped prescribing it, and some pharmacists will no longer fill the prescription for that reason. Sarah Blahovic joins me now along with Dr. Zeke Emanuel. Thank you both of you for joining me tonight. Sarah, let me begin with you here because for many people hearing this, they may say, well, I, I know that drug or I take that drug. Why would that be the type of drug that'd be taken off the shelves, so to speak, and you can't have access to? Tell me how you learned that you might be limited in your ability to get it. Yes. So methotrexate is known as a category X medication, which means that it has um, impacts on a potential fetus, uh, such as fetal abnormalities. Um, Many patients who are put on methotrexate are counseled to be on birth control, as was I whenever I was put on it back in 2017. Uh, And so it was uh, certainly something that was on our radars whenever the Dobbs decision came out, that this could be something that would be a little bit more complex to get. It's also known uh, for being a drug that can be used to uh, treat ectopic pregnancy. I don't know if it's used to treat or used in actual miscarriages or sorry, in abortions, but it's certainly used in ectopic pregnancies. So that's another reason it was known as potentially being um, impactful. And Dr. Emanuel, when you think about that, I mean, again, there is no successful, so to speak, ectopic pregnancy. It can lead to the death of the mother if she if it's not treated. It's not going to lead to implanting into the uterus. They, the, the fetus will not survive. Um, and so the idea of it being used for that, it's, not, it's more commonly used for things unrelated to pregnancy. Right? I mean, a, a Google search may have shown them that. Yeah, uh, you have uh, about 6 million prescriptions of methotrexate per year for about a million patients. That's not about abortions. That's about rheumatoid arthritis. It's about Crohn's disease, as uh, our patient has. It's about psoriasis. Um, The Texas legislature did not, when they uh, drafted their law, do any research on what else might methotrexate be used for besides an abortion, um, because the first thing you do when you do a Uh, What you see when you do a Google search is methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, So it's treated, it's used to treat a lot of people. It's an immune suppressant and it works very effectively for those patients. Um, And now they're going to suffer. Doctors aren't going to be able to practice medicine correctly and patients are going to be in pain and suffering uh, because of that law. Let me ask Sarah, because you're one of the patients who have had this prescribed. When you went to the pharmacist to get it filled, what happened? So I luckily was successful in refilling my prescription last Friday, but that was certainly not a given. I know of at least one other patient in Virginia, which is not a state with a trigger ban, uh, um, 
so she was denied by her doctor. Um, she was denied her medication. And there have been many other patients in states with trigger bans that have been denied it either by the pharmacy or by their doctors. Um, and in a lot of cases of the doctors, they're afraid of laws like in Texas, where they could be held liable for an abortion. Um, with regard to pharmacies, there is guidance that came out last week from the Department of Health and Human Services that says that it is illegal to deny people medications. But I'm not sure if those patients who were denied that mm. actually were successful in getting their medications filled after that guidance. I mean, doctor, save, um, you know, besides ectopic pregnancy, many of the cases we've outlined today affect both men and women. Are we suggesting that also men can longer access or is just this is a, a unique brand and gender of women who can't use this at all now because they happen to have uteruses? Well, if the reasons that pharmacists aren't fulfilling prescriptions is because they're worried about uh, if methotrexate being used for an abortion, it would be uh, preferentially giving men the drug and not giving it to women because they're worried about uh, it being used for an abortion. Um, it's just not very uh, precise law, and the Texas legislature you know, are inflicting pain needlessly on people just because they haven't thought through the consequences of just taking a medication off, uh, out of doctor's hands and out of prescription. And I think out of an, uh, you know, not putting their patients first, doctors are you know, being fearful, and uh, pharmacists are maybe uh, worried about their own prosecution too. I mean, that just sort of belies what we think about when we're talking about prudent care um, and what it would take and not being able to practice as you see fit, especially for the benefit of the patients. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, Sarah Blahovic, thank you so much. Thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.